0: Thank you for tuning in to the Grace Way Sermon Cast. Grace Way is a church located in Lexington, Kentucky, with a heart for God and a vision for the gospel. I'm Derek Holmes, lead pastor. So grab your Bibles and let's hear from the Word. Luke chapter 5, we're going to be getting into that text uh, here in just a second. So today is March the 8th, right? So everybody knows what that means on March 8th, right? That we are just one week away from the most wonderful time of the year. Everybody knows what I'm talking about, right? Selection Sunday, the kickoff to March Madness. Now, if you watched the Kentucky-Tennessee game uh, back on Tuesday, you probably are experiencing a whole nother type of March Madness, right? Um, how in the world does the number six team in the country with an eight-game winning streak blow a 17-point lead in the second half to a team that's fighting to get invited to the NIT? You know what's funny to me in Kentucky when our basketball team loses it's like the end of the world right It kind of reminds me of the book of Exodus I uh, remember when the death angel passed uh, passed over and the Bible says that there was a great wailing that rose up out of Egypt kind of ends up like that here in lexington doesn't it I mean you get on if you get on social media or the radio call in shows after the games you have people that are like questioning the existence of God, and the whole world is just falling apart. They're calling for Coach Cal's head. They've got conspiracy theories. Uh, The refs are the worst people in the world. I've never met a Kentucky fan who thinks that the refs do a good job ever in my life, but then you also have on the opposite end of the spectrum that no matter how bad the team is doing, you also see these other, other people that are on like, you know, win or lose. I just still love my cats, You know, and they're the eternal optimists and stuff. I land somewhere in the middle. If I'm honest, I'm probably veering more towards the psychopaths. Every March, it surprises me just how much I care about something that really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, you know. Um, But when it comes to your favorite team winning the game, the only ones that can actually do anything about it are the people on the court. Now, get that. The only ones who can put points on the board are the ones who are actually on the court, the only ones who are actually in the game. Matter of fact, I love this quote. I saw this a a couple years ago, actually, um, and I thought it was interesting. Modern sports can be summed up as an ironic scene of 10 people on a court in desperate need of rest being shouted out by thousands of people in desperate need of exercise. The truth is that cheerleaders and cheerleaders are really just not contributors at the end of the day. And what we see in sports is not really a whole lot different than what we see in church today. We have a lot of people who are content to be cheerleaders. You're not, against what, you're not against the mission of the gospel. You're not against Jesus. You're not against what the church is trying to do. And so you're, you're for it, and you, but you're not really going to get involved. You're okay if everybody else does the work, and you're going to cheer them on. So that's going to be my part. I'm just going to cheer that on. Now, some of you may be those cheerleaders. You may be like, man, I just don't like it. I don't like what's going on. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like this. And, you, and, and you're, just, you're just angry. And you know what? That may be you today. And you may be watching or you may be listening. You thought, you know what? I'm just checking out a church altogether because it just, it's just not for me anymore. So you may be a cheerleader. You may be a cheerleader. But we need more contributors. We need more people that will say, I'm not only for the gospel, I'm not only for the mission, I'm going to get in the game and I'm going to actually begin to contribute and make a difference when it comes to getting the gospel around the world. And that's my prayer through this series, is that Graceway would become a church that is full of contributors to the gospel message and to the gospel mission in Lexington and beyond. Now, we're talking about personal evangelism this month with Who's Your One? But there's all kinds of ways to be contributors You can get involved with being personally evangelistic, sharing the gospel, praying for your friends and your families who don't know Jesus Christ, your neighbors, and yes, even your enemies, to come to know Christ. Matter of fact, if you've got an enemy, probably the best thing that can happen for them is them to get some Jesus in their life, right? But you can also get involved in giving to missions, in praying for missionaries, in going on missions trips or getting engaged in those types of things as well. Being faithful to contribute to the financial needs of the local church so that the lighthouse can burn brighter and so that we can be better stewards of the resources to get the gospel around the world as well. Because here's what we often do. We often look at some of those numbers that Johnny Hunt just talked about in our video, and we think, man, those are some incredible numbers. Seven billion people in this world, and every one of them is a, is a soul that individually needs to come to know Christ. And we can look at that, and we can begin to think, I'm not skilled enough to reach the masses like I need to do. And so what it can cause us to do is just kind of take a seat over on the sidelines and sit down and wave our foam fingers and say, hey, you know what? You guys that are really good at communicating, you go get them, and I'll be cheering for you the whole time. But here's what the gospel says. Every believer is a witness, every single one of us, and the goal is not for you to be the only one that reaches everyone. The goal is for you to be one who reaches one, who reaches another, who reaches another, and to continue that process. The gospel message was always meant to be exponentially sown into our culture. Not just by pulpits and not just by radio shows and not just by big platforms, but by the smallest of platforms. You are walking around every day on the platform of the gospel. And let me ask you a question. How well are you sharing from that platform? Because we'll share all kinds of different things, right? We'll talk to the world about how great our grandkids are. We'll talk to the world. I don't have any grandkids yet, but my, my, you know, my kids' grandparents talk about how great they are. Never talked about me that way, but you know what I'm saying. Anyway, I'm getting over it. My therapist is getting overtime hours for it, but we talk about all the things that are important to us. March, we're going to talk a lot about basketball, right? We're going to talk a lot, about, a lot about different things. The greatest platform that we have to stand upon is the platform of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he has the power to actually change a life and change a life for eternity, not just to change a life, but to change the world. And our part in that is in identifying that one person just to start with and begin sharing the gospel with them. So with the passage that we're in today, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will ignite at least maybe even just one person in here to say, you know what, I'm going to take that challenge. I'm going to take the gospel to one other soul. Because statistically speaking, eight out of every ten people sitting in this room have never shared the gospel with one person in their life. Eight out of ten. You may have been saved for 50 years. But eight out of ten people in this room, statistically speaking, will live and die without ever sharing the gospel with another living soul. Folks, we got to do better. We've got to do better than that. And so the text this morning that we look at, we're going to look at four guys on International Women's Day. I know that's, I'm sorry, I don't mean that as a slap in the face. But we're going to look at four guys who cared so much for one friend that they were willing to do whatever it took to get their friend to the only person who could help them, and that's Jesus Christ. So in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse number 17, we're going to see this story. Maybe you've heard it before, uh, but we're going to look at it again. In Luke chapter 5, verse number 17, it says, And it came to pass on a certain day, or one, uh, on just any given day, as he was teaching, speaking of Jesus, that there were Pharisees and that there were doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. This says Jesus is going from town to town. This is in the early days of Jesus' ministry. By now, he uh, first of all, he launched into his ministry by performing a miracle. He turned the water into wine, which really gets people's, really gets people's attention when you can turn water into wine, right? Um, and so a lot of people are beginning to follow him, and there's miracles that are taking place. He's healed people. The Bible says the power of the Lord was on him to heal. And so he had begun drawing a crowd. Everybody, when they found out that Jesus was coming into town, they're like, let's go hear this guy. Let's go see this guy. Let's go see what's going on. And they wanted to see what was taking place and what Jesus could do. Remember we talked about last week, uh, everybody was looking for one of those smiha rabbis, right? The one who had authority uh, over all. And uh, so Jesus was just impressive to all of these people. He'd called these disciples. He was doing amazing things. And he grew, he grew a crowd of cheerleaders, But he also grew a crowd of cheerleaders, too, because there's the the scribes and the Pharisees there. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had a problem with Jesus because they felt that Jesus was teaching uh, something that went against everything that they had been teaching. And it did because the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and all of these guys had begun to teach not the law of God. They began to teach their own law. They said, okay, here's God's law, here's the Ten Commandments, but we're going to create about 10 or 15 extra laws on top of that, of each one of them, so that, we, uh, so that we make sure that we keep these laws so that we don't even get close to breaking God's law. And so what had happened is these guys had been so steeped in teaching their own law and their own traditions and their own rules that they had almost even forgotten the law of God. So here comes Jesus, and he's just purely teaching God's word and God's law, and they can't even identify the truth in the middle of all their tradition. Now, that's a problem that we have when we engage in legalism. We begin to think that my spirituality is defined by my rules and regulations that I have come up with rather than by what God's word has to say. It draws so much of our attention to rules and regs that we lose sight of Jesus, the truth himself. And in verse number 18, we see this. And behold, men brought in a bed or in a stretcher a man which was taken with a palsy or who was paralyzed, and they sought means or looked for a way to bring him in and to lay him before Jesus. And when they, could not <clears throat> excuse me, when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went up on the housetop and they led him down through the tiling with his couch. We're still talking about a stretcher here just based on the translations. Into the midst before Jesus Christ. And when he saw their faith, he said unto them, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason with themselves. What that means is they began to think in their own heads, saying, Who is this which speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, there's a question right there that the Pharisees asked. They asked the right question, but in the wrong spirit. This is a question that we all have to ask, and it's a question we all have to wrestle with in life Who is Jesus? We find that question throughout the New Testament. We find that question actually throughout the Old Testament, even though Jesus is not named yet, because the greatest longing of human existence is to know Jesus, to know who he is, and to have him in our lives. In the middle of a storm, Jesus was walking, uh, was, was, uh, was in a boat, and, they were, and the waves were crashing all around him. And the Bible says that Jesus went out and says, peace be still to the waves, and they immediately stopped. And the disciples, those who knew him best, even says, who is this that even the winds and the seas would obey them? Jesus asked the disciples, too, when they were following him, they said, who do you say that I am? He wanted to know, who do you say that I am? All of this, the gospel rests, and salvation and our eternity rests on who you say Jesus is, on who you trust Jesus to be. It doesn't rest on who your grandma said Jesus is, and it doesn't rest on who your preacher says Jesus is. It rests on who you believe him to be. We personally have to trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. We can't ride to heaven on somebody else's coattails. Now understand this, church, if you know Jesus Christ, we need to make sure that we pave the way and we are a huge trumpet blasting the gospel to the world so that there is no excuse for them to say, I didn't know. The last thing that we should ever want is for a friend or a family member to be in eternity in hell and just like the rich man in the Lazarus to look up and to see you in heaven saying, how did you know and not tell me? You see, but Jesus says, who am I? And we all individually have to struggle with that question. Who is this man who speaks to my soul? But that's not really the idea of the Pharisees' question. They're not asking, man, who is this Jesus that speaks to my soul? They're basically saying, who does this guy think he really is? Because, again, they're so blinded by their traditions. They're blinded by jealousy. They're blinded by not being able to see Jesus for who he really is. The question this morning for you, for me, for our friends and family members is, can we see Jesus for who he really is? And am I living a life that displays the true Jesus Christ that they need so desperately? And then in verse number twenty two, it says When Jesus perceived their thoughts, when he when he basically read their minds, he answering said unto them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Whether it's easier to say your sins are forgiven thee, or to say, rise up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power upon earth to forgive. Now I love this part. Jesus just answers their thoughts like they'd said them out loud. They had not spoken a word. They'd just been thinking this. And Jesus is like, hey, you guys over there, there, while you're thinking about how I'm a blasphemer and how I'm not doing things the way that you say I should do and how I might be a liar saying that I'm the son of God, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and just heal this guy right over here, and I'm going to make him walk. And pay no attention to the fact that I just completely read your mind. Get that. Imagine being one of those Pharisees sitting there thinking, man, who is this guy? we got to deal with him. And all of a sudden he says, oh, let me tell you who. He said, I read your mind. I am God. Talk about being put in your place, right? And then it says, he said unto the sick of the palsy, I said unto you, arise and take up your couch, still the stretcher, and go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them and took that whereon he laid and departed to his own house, glorifying God. My question here is, did he leave his friends behind on the roof like, I picture him running off, you know, all excited, and his friends just, like, peeking down through the hole going, Hey, guy, hey, man, wait for us, right? I mean, he's gotten up, and he's, he's ready to go. And it says this, and they were all amazed. They were all, meaning everybody there was amazed. And they glorified God, and they filled with fear, or they were filled with, filled with respect and reverence, saying that we have seen strange, and in the original language, that means incredible and amazing things today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning. It would not be me. It would open our hearts to what you have to say. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Now, in the first pass through this text, we focused a lot on the Pharisees right there. And that was on purpose because a lot of times uh, we have to realize that if we're not careful, and I believe this can happen, when we're not busy about the work of Jesus, we can get busy criticizing the work of Jesus if we're not careful. So we need to understand that we have the propensity to be all of these characters in our lives and at some season in our lives. All of us at one point, or maybe you still are today, were the paralytic, the man who was paralyzed, paralyzed by sin, paralyzed by the stench of death in our sin. All of us have the ability in Christ to be the four friends that care so much about their friend that they would bring him to Jesus. But all of us also have the propensity to have the mindset of the Pharisee wrapped up in stuff and wrapped up in all kinds of things that we've lost focus of what matters and what Jesus is really calling us to do as his followers. Remember what he called his followers to do? Remember what the job description was, the contract that Jesus made with Peter, James, and John, and Andrew last week? He says, follow me and what? I will make you fishers of men. That was job one on the job description of a disciple, to be a fisher of men. But we can become so wrapped up in other things that we forget that that's job number one. So in the first passage of the text, we see guys just standing around talking about what they should do, criticizing what others are doing, not making an effort. But now we also need to be aware of our propensity that we can become hinderers to the gospel of Christ from going forth like it should. But we also see there's people in the text who were moved and who were forever changed. The paralytic, absolutely. But there were also people who stood around and saw the power of God on display. And it says they began glorifying God. Some for the very first time in their life began praising and glorifying God because they saw his power on display. And church, there is a great number of people in this town and in this city and in this community who have have yet to come to a point where they've seen the power of God on display in their lives or in their town or in their community. And I believe that the church of Jesus Christ can be that catalyst that brings the praise and the worship of God into a community. But we have to be willing and we have to be open to be used as vessels. But there's also four guys. These four guys that are mentioned in their story that I want to focus the rest of our time on this morning. The four friends of the paralyzed guys. of the paralyzed guy. They weren't cheerleaders. They weren't even cheerleaders. They got in the game and they contributed. They contributed firsthand to the salvation and the healing of their friend. And I want us to consider this morning and learn four quick lessons from these four men and what they did and how we need to apply this to our lives. Because they got in the game and they did what was necessary to bring their friend to Jesus. And the first thing that we have to understand about these friends is that they all had a shared mission. Every one of these friends had a mission that they shared with one another. Now we have to understand that mission is something that is vital to our life. Whether we know it or not, every one of us have a mission. We live our lives by a mission statement, whether it's written down or whether it's posted somewhere. Our church has a mission statement. We want to be a place where people can connect with God, grow in him, worship him together, and serve God and the world. That's our mission statement, simply put. We want to be a place where people connect with God, worship him together, grow in him, and serve him by serving others. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Doesn't have, to be, doesn't have to be real long, doesn't have to be real, real difficult. Some of us, we have mission statements that are on our wall. Some of you. You're like, you're like into that whole farmhouse and shabby chic thing. And so you, you, what you did, you packed everybody into the family van, and you all drove around into the back, uh, back of all these stores, and you got some pallets, and you came home, and you had somebody you know, like make a big pallet art, and you got some artistic person to write out all of your family values and all of your family mission statement. It's hanging as a centerpiece in your living room. So when everybody walks in, you see your mission statement. In our family, we give hugs. In our family, we share. In our family, we, we dance like nobody's watching. In our family, you know, we do all these things, right? How many of you got something like that? I'm not making fun of you. We got one, too. It's long, man. It sits right by our dining room table because that's where we usually are, right? Um, <laughs> that's where we all usually come together, at least, because we all got to eat at some point, right? So we've all got those missions. At your job, your company probably has a mission statement. How many of you, If you know your company's mission statement, you're way ahead of the game, right? Now, What happens when you step outside of that mission? That's usually when the boss comes in and talks to you and reminds you, hey, at our company, this is what we're about. What you've been doing is not necessarily helping us get where we're wanting to go in our mission statement. Now, you have one one or two choices. You can either get with the mission, or you can go find another company to work at who has a mission that more meets up with what you're trying to do. And That's an easy way of saying, hey, get with the programmer. (laughs) We're going to have to find somebody else, right? But our mission statements are important because they drive us, they give us direction, and they motivate us along the way because this can happen. At any given time in life, we can become distracted and forget our way. We can become like a ship without a rudder. Our mission in life is like the rudder that puts us back on course and keeps us on course. So let me ask you a question. What is your mission? What is your mission as a follower of Jesus Christ? What is your mission as a human being? And really, here's the thing. As a human being who's saved by Jesus, it shouldn't be any different. Your mission as a human and your mission as a follower of Jesus Christ should be one and the same. Our mission should be the same mission as, this, as these four guys had, is that we want to see people come to Jesus. Their mission was all the same, Every, all four of them. They wanted to see their friend walk like they could. That was their mission. They wanted their friend to be able to walk like they could. Isn't that the gospel for us? Isn't that the great commission for us, that we want to see our friends, our families, our co-workers, our, our neighbors, our enemies, our kids, our grandmas, our grandpas know Jesus and walk with him like we are? To have eternal life like we do, the eternal hope of Jesus Christ? Isn't that our mission? We have to remember that everyone that we know that doesn't know Jesus Christ is that paralytic in the stretcher. And praise God, Once one day we were that paralytic in the stretcher. But because of his grace and his mercy, someone... Or something, some way, we were brought on a stretcher to the feet of Jesus, and he said, Arise, take up your bed, and walk, and we've been walking with him since. See, we get so bogged down in all this other stuff. So, most people are familiar with social media apps today, right? Have you got Facebook on your phone? Okay. Have you got Twitter on your phone? Not as many, okay. Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok. <laughs> you like that one, didn't you, Nat? All right. You got all these different social media apps, right? It's how people keep Now these are not just apps that are on your phone. These are companies where people actually work, at big headquarters and stuff. And they have a mission statement, too. For instance, Instagram's mission statement is very simple. Their statement is to capture and share the world's moments. Oh, isn't that sweet and warming? Isn't that nice? And that's what we're doing. We're capturing and sharing the world's our moments when we when we make sure that we snap that big huge cheeseburger that just looks too like, you shouldn't eat it. You, it's a heart attack on a bun. You want to snap it so everybody else can be, can be like, uh, jealous of that, right? But you know what Facebook's mission statement is? Letting grandma and grandpa keep up with the grandkids. No, I'm just saying that's not really their mission statement, but that's pretty much just what it comes out to, right? That's just really pretty much what it's about, right? Jesus had a mission statement, too, and you can find it in, John, in Luke chapter 19, just a few chapters over from where we are, when he says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. That was Jesus' mission statement. Pretty simple, right? I've come here, I left heaven to come to earth so that I could seek and to save those who are lost. And guess what? Same mission that we have. When he gave us our mission in Matthew chapter 28, go and make disciples, seek and save that which was lost. Teach them whatever you've learned from me, teach them to do the same thing. And he said, I'll be with you the whole time. The question is, what was the mission that these guys had? What was the driving factor behind the mission that they had? Their driving factor behind the mission for their friend was their love for their friend. They loved their friend. They all got together. And you know what? They finally got to the point where they got tired of getting together and him not being able to keep up and not being able to do things. And they heard that there was this man who came from Nazareth in Galilee. And he could raise people from the dead. And he could make the lame to walk. And they thought, here's his chance. And they thought, we want him to walk like we do. And so they thought, we've got to get him to Jesus. So they brought, themselves, or they brought him to someone who could help him. So the simple question today is, what drives us? What is it that drives us? Is it money? Is it getting a leg up on the competition? Is it having the biggest and the best, the brightest and the shiniest? Because that's pretty much the American mission, isn't it? That's the American way. That's kind of what we're known to do, isn't it? It's what we're trained to do from the very beginning. You're in high school. What, is always, what, what people always ask you, what are you going to do after high school? I mean, are you going to go to college? Are you going to go to military? What are you going to do? Then when you're in college, it's like, what are you going to do? What are you going to get a job? Where are you going to work? Why? Because so you can get money, and so you can live, and so you can do it. And, and your parents are asking you that so you can get out of the house. That's why they're asking you that. But really, it's all based on how much are you going to produce What Jesus is saying, our mission in life is to bring people close to Christ. Bring people close to Christ. Parents, what's your mission? Is it that your children would come to faith in Jesus Christ? Because if that's the mission, here's what you're going to do. You're going to spend every day making effort to see your children grasp the beauty of the gospel. You're going to spend every day trying to do that. Every day it will be in your conversation. Every day it's going to be in the prayers that you pray for your children to come to Christ. Every day you'll seek to love them like Jesus so that they can see that Jesus loves them. Because mission defines who we are and what we do. Our mission defines who we are and what we do. And I love what Pastor Jim Cimbala, who's the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York City, he said this in one of his books that he wrote several years back. He said, I despaired at the thought that I might let my life slip by without, show it, without God showing himself mightily on my behalf. That's kind of his mission statement. That was kind of uh, brought by a passion that he had in life. He didn't want to just live his life for his own glory. Now, he could have. Here was a man who had two simultaneous scholarships to two different universities that he had to cho- from two different sports that he had to choose from. He could have gone on to be a professional athlete. He could have been an amazing guy. He joined the Navy. He was in the Naval Academy and did all kinds of things. But he said this. He said, I shudder to think at what my life would be if I did not see God move mightily through me. It wasn't about having everybody say, hey, look at Jim. It's about, hey, look what God's doing in Jim's life. Look at what God's doing in Jim's life. So the question is, do we have a vision for how we will fulfill the role in the mission of the gospel? Do you have a personal vision for that? What's your mission? For these guys, for their paralyzed friend, their mission was, we want our friend to walk. Jesus is making people walk, so we're going to get our friend to Jesus because he can't get himself there. It's pretty simple, right? The second thing that we have to understand about our friends is, or about, about these guys, is that they had an urgent expectation. Not only did they have a shared mission, but they had an urgent expectation. What made things so urgent for them? What was their expectation? was that Jesus could heal the lame man. Could heal their friend. They had heard that Jesus had been doing all this, and they actually had great faith that Jesus could do it, but they just had to get him to Jesus. So that was the thing that was laying in their mind. And it was urgent because Jesus was only going to be there for the day. He was passing through town, so it was now or never. So they had an urgency to their expectation. Look at verse number 17. One of those days while he was teaching, says the power of the Lord was to heal him. They had faith in Jesus. Their expectation became urgent because of their faith in Christ. Now, church, I think sometimes our expectation to see our friends and our family come to know Christ is because we have just lost our hope and faith that Jesus is still in the saving business. I'm going to let that one sink in a little bit further. Could it be that the reason we've become so apathetic about our friends and our family and those who are lost coming to know Christ is because we've just lost our faith that Jesus is in the saving business. Could it be that the reason that we have stopped caring so much about what somebody who maybe thinks differently about us politically, we've stopped thinking more about their soul and started thinking more about their opinion, could it be because we've really just lost the ability to trust that God truly wants to save them too, yes, even our enemies? You see, we got to realize that none of this stuff is about us, and none of this stuff is about our way. It's about him, and it's about his way. And his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do we believe that Jesus is still in the saving business? If we believe that Jesus is still in the saving business, then it will create an urgency. That expectation will create an urgency towards our friends and our families. We can't just be apathetic about it. Because if we have an expectation that he is in the saving business, we know that we're a part of that. Because he said, you're the one to take the message. You see, they took a risk because of their mission. They said, all right, we're going to go get our friend. We're going to tar- carry him through the stretcher. Now, the friend may have been like, what in the world are you doing? What's going on? You're running through the streets. He's bouncing and jostling all over the place because, man, they're trying to get there. And they're booking it there. And he's thinking, what in the world's going on? And when they try to get in the door and they don't see it. They don't stop there. They keep on going. There's an urgency to their message. Why? Because their mission mission had great value to them. And when our mission has great value to us, we realize that the mission may be risky, but it's totally worth it. And here's something we have to understand. When the mission is of greater value than the risk involved in accomplishing the mission, we're going to follow through every single time. When the mission is of greater value than the risk involved in accomplishing the mission, we will follow through every single time. What I mean by that is... If it's important enough to see your friends and family members come to Christ, you'll press through the discomfort. You'll press through the awkwardness. You'll press through the things that oftentimes hold us back. Because if the mission of seeing them saved is more important than the risk that we take to get the message to them, we'll press through it. The eager expectation of Jesus' power to heal moved them to action. They believed that Jesus could save, and they knew that he was the only one. And here's the thing. We're living in a time when there are more people on the planet than ever before to hear the gospel. We're living at a time we have more resources at our disposal to get the message of hope to them than we've ever had before. Yet the people of God are more silent than they've ever been. Why is that? Does anybody else feel guilty yet? We're living at a time when there's more people on the planet to hear the gospel than ever before. At a time we have more resources than we've ever had. Yet the church is more silent than we've ever been. Oh, we're, we're we're loud. We'll tell you we'll tell you our opinion on a lot of things, just not on Jesus. See, here's the thing. I love casting crowns. One of their songs says, "When it comes to the church, and when it comes to Christians, a lot of people know everything that we're against. They just don't know who we're for. They just don't know who we're for. And we're supposed to be for one, right? For Jesus." I could go on there, but I'm going to just let that one lay there just for a second. These guys believe that Jesus could heal them. Church, do we honestly believe that Jesus still saves? Because if we do, it will compel us to action. They wanted their friend to walk so badly they took a chance to get him to Jesus. And if we believe that Jesus is truly the only hope, are we willing to take the risk of what it takes to get them to him? If we're truly believers, we can't be satisfied just to sit around and talk to each other about Jesus. We can't just be satisfied to sit around and talk about the mission. We need to get involved in the mission. We either don't truly believe that Jesus saves. Here's the thing. If we're going to continue to stay silent, we either don't truly believe that Jesus saves or we don't truly care about them like we say we do. So the question is, do we have an eager and urgent expectation? The next thing is these friends encountered an obstacle. was their obstacle. Their obstacle was a closed door or a packed house, right? The Bible says in verse number 19, since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they lowered him on the stretcher through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. A lot of times we don't get involved in the mission or we're content to stay on the sidelines and cheer because we think that's all we're skilled enough to do because there's too many obstacles in the way. I'm not eloquent enough. I'm not educated enough. I'm not likable enough. Um, there's all kinds of excuses that we can use. And what we we'll often do is we look at those things like closed doors. We talk a lot of times about open doors. Right? I'm just looking for an open door to share the gospel. I'm looking for an open door of ministry. But understand this. As much as God swings those doors open, Satan is working overtime to close those doors all around you. Proof positive is this story. They got their friends to Jesus, and guess what? The place was so crowded, the door was jam-packed, and they couldn't get in. They weren't going to be able to get a guy in a stretcher in a house that was completely completely packed in, and here's what they could have done. They said, well, you know what? We just didn't get there in time. Maybe if he had, you know, been ready and we didn't have to get his shoes on for him, and maybe if we didn't have to, you know, stop and do this and that and the other, we we could have gotten him here in time. We just didn't leave in time, and so we just missed our opportunity. That door was closed. No, they said, forget the closed doors. This is our one chance. And they went up to the roof, and they tore that roof open. And, hey, guess what? The 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 homeowner got a new sunroof out of the whole deal they lowered their friend down into Jesus for Jesus to take notice. Guys, how many times do we think, I'm going to go and I'm going to witness to my friend, or I'm going to call my friend, I'm going to invite them to church, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that, and you know I'm really going really to make an effort, and then something stands in the way. You know, I told you about my friend that I'm praying for right now, and he's a dad. And a lot of times when he and I are together, the kids are around You know, because the moms need to go away and get the break, right? No. But their kids are around, and their kids are young, and they're always yelling and tugging and screaming, or something else is going on. Or he's a huge, uh, he has hospitality central, man. So he's always got people over. A lot of times we're there, a lot of people around. I'm thinking, man, there's just never an open door. But I never thought, sometimes I think, maybe I just need to go up on the roof and start tearing some tiles out. You can be sure that if you you want to share the gospel, Satan's going to try everything he can to close that door. But understand this. If you come up to a closed door, when it comes to the sharing the gospel, you come to a closed door, you can be sure that it wasn't Jesus who shut it. God doesn't shut the doors. He'll help you go through them. We need to have the, we need to have the audacity, and we need to have the passion to press through that. Now, don't be a jerk, you know. You don't know, be like, well, you know what? I didn't get a chance to talk to you about what I wanted to talk to you about today. But I just want to leave you with these final words, man. Turn or burn, buddy. See you later. Don't do that. Be consistent in it. Don't look at it as a one-time thing. Look at it as a continual investment in these people. When you commit to get people to Jesus, you can count on obstacles. But you have to be resolved that whatever may come, the mission is worth the risk to follow through. So the question is, and you'll deal with this in your life groups tonight, what are the obstacles that are derailing you from the mission? And what would it look like for me to dig a hole in the roof? What would it look like for me to actually do that? And then lastly, and we're closing up this morning, these friends got more than they expected. All their friends wanted them to do was to get to Jesus and have him be able to walk again. That's all they wanted. But there's something very important that took place in verse number 20. Jesus said, seeing their faith, he said, your sins are forgiven. This man didn't just get healed physically. This man was healed spiritually spiritually more than if jesus had never raised him from his stretcher he saved his soul when we share the gospel god is always going to work in ways that we could never have imagined because what we lack sometimes is we lack the ability to see things through heaven's eyes jesus will always work when we're willing to share what happened even before the man was healed to walk he was healed to live eternally they thought the primary need primary need of this man was external to be able to walk, but Jesus saw the greater internal need was to be saved. And friends, church, we've got to start seeing beyond the external, you know, the diamond, you know, the the rough, and begin to see the diamond that's inside of it. We've got to look past the external stuff, the stuff that just gets on our nerves, the stuff that's annoying, the fact that they question God or the fact that they have problems with this or that or the other, and they don't speak Christianese like we do sometimes, and we have to see that their soul is, is eternal. We have to look past the external and see the eternal. And the paralyzed man wasn't the only one that was impacted that day. You know what happens when we begin sharing the gospel? We are impacted too. We are changed. We are brought nearer to the feet of Jesus. We become more passionate. Our worship becomes pure. That's exactly what happened here. It so says they began glorifying and praising God for his goodness. Why? Because they had seen him work. church, when we begin to see Jesus work, Jesus begins to show up in ways that we've never, we've never imagined. But he's always been showing up. We just hadn't had the eyes to see it because we've been too busy looking at other things. I think back to our first baptism service just a few weeks ago. Man, wasn't that an awesome day? This is why I get so hyped for Easter and Christmas time because we begin to see people come in. But you know what always seems to trail off? Is that, oh, well, they're not coming back. You know, what did we do wrong? We did, you know, maybe we didn't follow up like we should. Listen, what they need to see is Jesus in us. Jesus is contagious, people. And while you may be afraid of coronavirus, you don't have to be afraid of Jesus. Jesus is contagious. And when, we, and when Jesus is alive and well in us, people will be drawn to Jesus. But we have to be caring for them. We need to understand this, that who's your one? Evangelism, the gospel, the Great Commission is not for us. The Great Commission is for those who do not know Christ, and it's for the glory of God. This is where our position as servants come into play. The Great Commission isn't for us. The Great Commission is for those who don't know Christ and for the glory of God. And because of God's goodness, as we begin to be used in the Great Commission, we begin to be drawn closer, and our passion for the lost grows, and our passion for Jesus grows, and our joy begins to grow. Our confidence in him begins to grow, and the things that used to tick us off about the world around us just don't tick us off like they should anymore. Because we've come, and we've got our rudder back, and we've got our mission back, and our focus back, and we realize that ultimately... One day, I'm going to stand before Jesus. I already have the victory. I want my friends to have that too. I want to close by just reading this illustration this morning. Last week, we talked about the fishermen that Jesus called. While, While we do that, I would like for you to reach down and grab the two cards that you had in your seat when you came in this morning. Who's Your One is basically just the title. It's a, a kind of a campaign that many churches are doing around the country within the Southern Baptist Convention. But Who's Your One is basically a way of life. It's a way of life that we want to instill. Because a lot of times we want to look at the masses and we think, man, that's a big task. But when you look at just one, it doesn't seem as big. You have two cards here. You have one that is just like a a small little postcard size, just one-sided. Last week, I challenged you to pray about who is your one. Who is that one person that you know that does not know Christ? I'm not asking you who's that one person that you know that doesn't come to Graceway, that knows Christ, or maybe goes to another church, or isn't in a church. I'm talking about a person who does not know Christ as their Savior, and that God has burdened you, that when you hear the word loss, when you hear the word sinner, when you hear people talk about hell, that person pops to your mind because God has laid a burden on your heart. Whoever that person is, I'm challenging this morning to write that name on this card. Just their first name. doesn't have to be their last name. Just their first name. And in just a moment, when we pray, I want to ask you to bring that card and lay it here at the altar. And we're going to spend time as a church in prayer over these names. And I also promise you, along with the leadership of this church, that we'll be praying over those names individually every day. We're going to take those cards, develop a list, and we'll be praying along with you for your ones. The other card is for you to replicate and put that same name right there at the top of that. And this is for you to keep. And this is just a checklist of the scriptures that we're praying through in our 30 days. But to keep that in your Bible or wherever it is that you are going to see it to remind you every day to continue to pray. Because the first investment that we make is to pray. And then we engage in gospel conversations. You may or may not, the first time you talk to them about Christ, get to a full explanation of the gospel. You may even think, thinking, I don't even know how to give a full explanation of the gospel yet. We're going to be working on that. But just begin to talk to them about Jesus. Open up the conversation. Because what the true what true soul winning is and what true evangelism is, just one beggar telling another beggar where they found bread. If you're saved, tell them how it happened for you. I encourage you to bring these and we're going to in just a moment take take time to pray over those. But I want to read this because this is, I found this this week, and I think this is really interesting. Last week, we saw that Jesus refers to the first disciples as fishermen. He says, if you follow me, I'll make you fisher of men. Now, understand that this is a lot of times what takes place. It came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen. And lo, there were many fish in the waters, and they were all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lake, and they were filled with fish, and the fish were very hungry. Week after week, month after month, year after year, these who called themselves fishermen met in meetings, and they talked about how to call to fish, the abundance of fish, and how they might go about fishing. And year after year, they carefully defined what fishing meant. They defended fishing as an occupation, and they declared that fishing was always to be a primary task of the fishermen. Continually, they searched for a new and better method of fishing and for new and better definitions of fishing, and they created witty slogans. And they displayed them on big, beautiful banners. These fishermen built large and beautiful buildings called fishing headquarters. And the plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. One thing they didn't do, however, they didn't fish. Large. In addition to meeting regularly, they organized a board to send out fishermen to other places where there were many fish. The board hired staffs and appointed committees and held many meetings to define fishing, to defend fishing, and to decide what new streams should be thought about. But the staff and the committee members did not fish themselves. Large, elaborate, and expensive training centers were built whose original and primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. Over the years, courses were offered on the needs of fish, the nature of fish, where to find fish, the psychological reactions of fish, and how to approach and feed fish. Those who taught had doctrines on fishology, but the teachers did not fish. They only taught fishing. Year after year, after tedious training, many graduated and were given fishing licenses, and they were sent to do full-time fishing, some to distant waters which were filled with fish. Many who felt the call to be fishermen responded, and they were commissioned and sent out to fish, but like the fishermen back home, never fished. They engaged in all kinds of other occupations. Some felt their job was to relate to the fish in a good way so the fish would know the difference between good and bad fishermen. Others felt that simply letting the fish know they were nice, land-loving neighbors and how loving and kind they were was enough. Now it's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed. They put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and before the smell of dead fish every day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of their fishermen's clubs and the fact that they claimed to be fishermen but they never fished. Imagine how hurt some were when one day a person suggested that those who don't fish were not really fishermen to begin with no matter how much they claim to be. Yet it did sound correct. Is a person a fisherman if year after year, week after week, day after day, he never actually fishes? More plainly stated, is one really following if he isn't fishing? So it's time to start, start casting our nets. And the question is, who's the one that you're gonna go after? Who's your one? So we all are fishers of men, but if we never fish, can we really be called fishers? every head bowed and every eye closed this morning.